Okay, I am recording. All right, Taylor. I'm ready, lady. We are doing this podcast. This world of fundraising that we all know it, it's evolving and it's hard. We also wanted to start this as a way for people to listen in on conversations from the best in the biz. I'm Devin Twyman. And I'm Taylor Shanklin, aka T-Shank on the street. And you're tuned in to Raise More Now. Raise More Now, 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 now. All right, Taylor, which episode is this one? Episode six. Our guest is a real cool charity nerd named Brady Josephson. We actually just met Brady down in Austin recently at a conference. You and I both did. He came to our party. Really cool, smart, witty guy. We got to really dig deeper into monthly giving programs. He's an adjunct teacher, specifically around teaching students fundraising. We definitely talk about mailing the dead. Don't mail the dead. (laughs) Don't. Don't mail the dead. Brady also loves badminton and long walks on the beach. Here we have him, the charity nerd. You didn't say our names, but that's okay. All right, all right. Let's get this party started. Welcome, welcome. Today, we've got a very special guest, Brady Josephson, on the show. And Brady, to kick it off, I wanted to say welcome and to have you give us a little bit of background about yourself and tell us about what you are doing at Shift Charity. Sure. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so Shift Charity is what I'm up to uh, now. It's, uh, it's an agency that we started about three or four months ago. And uh, the purpose behind it is to really take care of kind of annual fund donors or we're saying kind of donors who give you $1,000 or less throughout the year. We'll work with charities and basically do all the communications and marketing and web and strategy around how to engage with them, whether it's through monthly giving or social fundraising or just good old direct mail, whatever it might be, uh, so that they can focus their time on kind of um, major gifts and grants in the areas that's hard to outsource and where, you know, the bigger dollars are. And that kind of model for me is, is I studied nonprofit management in grad school, um, and then as soon as I got out working for a small startup nonprofit, I realized a lot of what you learn and a lot of what is you know being taught and uh, the books that we read and the resources we have, they don't cater to small and medium-sized nonprofits, and nor are there a lot of agencies that provide relevant services to small and medium nonprofits. So that's kind of a bit of you know my journey and background has been working with more medium-sized nonprofits and just kind of seeing a couple gaps and opportunities and uh, shift in our team. That's what we're trying to trying to fill. And so you got you mentioned grad school and I know you're you are an adjunct professor now. So you got your graduate degree in nonprofit management and that's what you teach now or tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. So I studied in nonprofit administration at North Park University in Chicago, and then uh, I had a concentration in fundraising management. Um, and and now I teach. I have been teaching principles of fundraising, and then uh, this last summer, the the dean and I we kind of um, created a new course that's just annual giving. And part of it again was you know academia lags well behind like where <laughs> things are currently. So like there wasn't a lot being taught about online fundraising, not even like social fundraising or anything that's more like new school, just like email fundraising. Mm-hmm. So that that just sh- shouldn't be. So we kind of rebuilt the class. It used to be annual gifts and major gifts, uh, and we just separated them. So now it's just annual giving, and we have a lot more focus on uh, web and digital in there. Um, so yeah, I teach online, a couple classes. It's fun. 
Yeah, so when is your first semester with the new program? It's right now. Ooh. It's right now. We're uh, three three weeks into it, and I'm like two weeks behind. So <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Hey, Good that's stuff. how we work around here, right? You gotta just <laughs> keep going, keep trucking, yeah. Yeah. Um, roll with the punches. <laughs> right. So, like, how many students are in your class? This class is about fifteen. Um, the class sizes don't get any bigger than about 20 for the most part. And the programs cater towards uh, working professionals. So it's, it's mainly people that, um, you know, they, they'll complete their master's degree um, online or a combination of online and person over a series of years. So they'll kind of chip away. Um, and all the, the work is case study focused. So if you don't work for a nonprofit, you have to volunteer with one or have access to one. So all the assignments are, so whether we're talking about an annual giving plan or a stewardship plan or whatever, you have to kind of either build one with an organization in mind or use one in existence and kind of critique and tweak it as opposed to just, you know, abstract theoretical learning about fundraising plans or stuff like that. Something that I've been, Devin and I and our team has been talking a little bit about really recently is like the the giving pie and how those mediums are changing. But, you know, I'm curious from your perspective, if you see the, the overall giving pie itself giving, getting larger, or if you just see people giving in different mediums and like the way the pie is split up is, is what's just different now. Yeah. So... This is a good conversation. So two things. One, um, the pie really isn't growing, and that's the biggest thing that is frustrating. So um, charitable giving is growing, but as a percentage of GDP, it hasn't really changed for the past 40 years. Um, And when you actually look at the number of people that have been giving in the last 10 years, I think it's actually down like 13% or something like that. So we're actually just as charitable or potentially less charitable when it comes to official giving than we have been in the past. And so I think that's the biggest challenge facing this sector is kind of, um, you know, millennials and generation Z, we say Z in Canada, uh, they're more more inclined to be charitable and benevolent and all this kind of stuff, but hasn't translated necessarily over into like giving and results. So we cumulatively have to find ways to, to grow the pie as opposed to just, you know, fight over bigger portions of the same pie. So that's like the sectoral view. And then as far as like channels and mediums, one of the things we we always say is where people transact is, is not always where they interact. So meaning, um, you know, people will look at where their donations are coming from in their Google Analytics and say, oh, we only get 5% of donations from Facebook. Like, why should we invest in Facebook? It's like, well, that's not a transactional medium for Right? Or they'll look at, oh, we get 80% of our revenues in annual giving in, in the mail, so we're just going to cut digital. It's like, well, where are they learning about you? Where are they getting stories? Where are they getting updates throughout the year? It's probably through digital and web. So I just think that you know, trying to pigeonhole or, or identify these you know, areas of um, you know, uh, attribute um, metrics right into, okay, this came from Facebook and this is Twitter and this is online, this is mail, and then that dictate where you invest. I actually don't think that's actually very smart as opposed to thinking about it more holistically in an integrated strategy. So that's what we do all the time. It's like, great, do mail for sure. Let's optimize it but add a digital component and it's kind of all that we do. Yeah, no, I think that's great because I think even today, you know, how many times do we just go through Facebook or Twitter really quickly and it triggers something down the line when you've thought about something or, and I think that's why Facebook's done so well with their advertisements (laughs) and everything like that. I would agree with you that, 
Unfortunately, the pie's not getting bigger, but the way people remember you or remember your story is a whole different, you know, median and the ability to kind of trigger a thought, oh man, I do need to give to that person. Yeah, there, there's a good study, it was done by uh, Wagner Edstrom out of uh, DC and talking about social influence and, um, and charitable causes. And I think the stat was something like 61% of people find out about causes through their friends, largely via social media. And on the bottom was like they learn about it from the organization or the organization's website itself. So even though they might eventually go on to the you know website and make a donation or fill out a card or something at an event, they're learning about organizations, A, through peers, and B, online. So that's the other thing is talking about the value of like social influence. It's not just how much money is coming in. So trying to get organizations to think a little bit differently about it's not just, you know, so direct. We spent X and we got Y, but it's more like all of these things working together, you know, cumulatively make your brand and, and that's what's more important. But it's, uh, it's kind of tricky too. So now I can't remember where I pulled this because I did some stalking of you the other day. <laughs> yeah, you uh, stalk a lot of people online before well, our podcast. Yeah, you stalk well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So um, you know, this might have been in one of your presentations or just Twitter. So I noticed something that you had posted that said, "Don't mail the dead, moved or uninterested." I think that's so key. Um, I think one of the things that I hear often is, well, my database is dirty. Like, how am I supposed to even start here? What's my first action? You know, give us some guidance there. Yeah, yeah, that was, uh, I think that was an post I did for Virtuous, which is a new kind of CRM that um, I'm working and, and writing for a little bit. And first of all, like, everyone's thinks their database is dirty and it sucks. <laughs> like I haven't met a single client who's like, our dad is perfect and we love our CRM. <laughs> Doesn't I, happen. I just don't think it exists. And like every tool, like really good tools, the best tools, like everyone's unhappy for the most part with how they manage, you know, data. So, you know, again, that, that's the first thing is like, you're not alone. Everyone feels that way. But the second thing is I think it's easy to get overwhelmed by, you know, the significance of of those types of projects. Like, you know, you're dealing with potentially thousands of records going back, you know, tens of years and you're just overwhelmed by the magnitude of it. So one of the things that we always kind of suggest is like, well, start cleaning it up now. Like, don't wait until you have this perfect plan and, you know, it's all going to fit nice and you got, you know, post-it notes that all flow charts. Just like start <laughs> cleaning up your data now and so one of the strategies is actually don't go back maybe like two years or something but don't go all the way back to the 1970s and try to you know clean up data then um you know either start today and you know start collecting the clean data that you need in the way that you want to use it uh or just go back a couple years instead of trying to you know get everything up to speed or tackle little chunks at a time so if one of them is just say like email and address so particularly that's what we use for solicitations right if you want to do an integrated appeal well where are they how do we have emails and and mailing addresses that are tied to the same account so maybe you just look at that one thing for uh, a six-month chunk and we're just going to improve this one section of the site forget about phone numbers and forget about some of this other stuff we're just going to clean up this one area because I think if you try to attack it as like we're going to get it, this perfect database all in one, like you're just not going to do it and you're going to fall down and kind of, um, you know, the, the cleanup process. Um, and then fundamentally, I just think we need to start thinking a little bit differently about 
CRMs. Like they're typically owned by IT and finance, uh, and they should be more owned by marketing, in my opinion. So um, you know, IT and finance, bless them. Uh, <laughs> they typically, you know, either focus on like really nerdy things like full custom integrations or finance things, which is basically reducing cost. And if you kind of go down both of those paths, you end up with really clunky, cheap, kind of crappy <laughs> tools and views on, on data. Whereas if marketing is more like we want to know who these donors are and start from that standpoint, then that's a better way to view how we use CRMs and data. Yeah, I like that. So start small and see that progress. Um, I think that's key. Like sometimes when you're trying to prioritize each week or even quarter, you know, if your goal's too big to see any accomplishment, you're going to give up. So set good milestones and goals that you can actually achieve. Life lesson. <laughs> Life lesson. Yep. Life lesson. Life lesson. Yep. Small chunks. Oh, man. I know. I mean, I like working on those data cleanup things with clients was always like sometimes it would just make my head spin. They'd send me these like spreadsheets with 20,000 rows in it. And I'm like, how do you, how the hell do you look at this? I'm going to go get a coffee now. Cause I just, I just can't, it's, it's just, I just yeah. can't. <laughs> One of the things we do is like data audits. So basically they'll export us their database and then we'll crunch a ton of numbers that really their CM CRM should probably do, be doing, but it's just either the CRM doesn't or whatever, but you know we get we get some crazy data files and with like weirdly named things, or because like the person owning the data has changed over the years, and you get like little nicknames in there and like all this weird stuff. And it's just kind of interesting. You get a glimpse of an organization by looking at their data fields, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. It's funny because so we just we've recently implemented a new CRM system for us. And, um, so I'm, I'm right at the beginning stages of like, okay, how do I make sure I do this so that it's not totally like screwed up from the start? It's been interesting. I've never started one on my own like this. So this is the first time where it's like, I've owned setting it up and saying like, okay, here are my rules. Here are the boundaries. Here's who I don't want to put into it right now, you know, because you know, it's it's not really, you know, meaningful. So, um, yeah, I'm, like, trying to set up my different tags and stuff like that, <laughs> you know, so that it doesn't end up being a nightmare. Yeah. So one of our mottos here um, is to fail faster. And season one is all about building something from the ground up. And so I really liked um, that, I believe you retweeted this. This is from Drew Houston, the co-founder at Dropbox. And he said, don't worry about failure. You just have to be right once. And so my question to you is, how should nonprofits adopt this motto? Yeah, this uh, you know subject, I think, could be like a, its whole multiple podcasts. Because um, you know, one of the coolest things about spending time on the tech side of things, not necessarily working for a charity, was learning more about this area of whether it's, you know, the lean startup and agile methodology and, you know, fail fast and stuff like that. But then always having a fundraising and charity background thinking about, man, there's some fantastic stuff in that, in that mindset. But then also just shows the gap between, you know, tech, which is quick and innovative and, you know, explosive and charity, which is typically not, (laughs) not very innovative and things don't just happen quickly. And I think a lot of it relates to risk 
and 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 fear of failure. And part of it is again like at a high high level, this whole notion of overhead and how much you can and can't spend and uh, focus on direct ROI, meaning dollars in and dollars out. And we've elevated these metrics like um, how much do you spend to raise a dollar and the less is greater. But that just creates an environment where you can just spend less and then you get rewarded for it and it sounds like you're doing better. So you know, a couple of things that we, we do with clients just to start shifting the mindset a bit to think about failure or, or risk differently is focus on net. Don't focus on efficiency. So who cares if you spend fifty thousand dollars? As long as you raise, you know, two fifty, that's better than spending ten to raise a hundred because you have two hundred thousand dollars for your cause. Um, so it's less efficient, but there's more money which is going to your cause. That's better. That's how you should be thinking about it. And then also focusing on things like transactions or underlying metrics as opposed to top line revenue because revenue can fluctuate a lot from quarter to quarter, year to year. You get a big gift, you get a big grant. Looks like you have a great year, but your fundamentals behind the scenes maybe are poor. So trying to focus more on things like donor retention or number of donations that you receive each year is a lot better indicator of the strength of your fundraising program. So if you start thinking a bit differently about, okay, it's about net and it's about transactions, then how you view your decision starts to change because it's not like we need to make money right away. We need transactions right away or it's not like we need to be super efficient. We just need net gains. So that's the bigger thing for me is to, is to try to start shifting the mindset about how we view decision-making and, and kind of unlearn all this crap that we've had to adopt about the sector in terms of ROI and overhead and all this other stuff. But it's, it's extremely difficult, right? Because that stuff is drilled in. You got mm-hmm. really smart, you know, CFRE people and, you know, and they're, they're preaching these, these metrics and stuff like that. And that's what they know. And that's what they've been taught. And they're kind of passing it down. And it's just, it's really tough because it's so heavily uh, ingrained in the mindset and it, it doesn't help. <laughs> yeah. Top down, yeah. top down. How do we yeah. do that? How are you, I mean, you on an individual client basis are doing that. How do you see like big picture, how we, we make that shift in mentality? Yeah. Have you thought so, about it? I mean, it, it's, it's the one reason it's, in one sense, it's the reason why I started writing. Um, you know, some of my own experiences, like learning and being like, wait a second, this, this isn't right. This seems seems wrong. Uh, And I was actually at a conference in uh, in Toronto, I heard Dan Pallotta speak, right? This was a little bit before, you know, Dan Pallotta and Uncharitable became this like big thing. Um, And I was just so inspired, I took the afternoon off, launched my blog, wrote my first post, um, because just was thinking, man, this is this is a big deal that is keeping a lot of good causes and work down. And so me, uh, you know, writing is one of the ways that I've, I've tried to do it. Um, and every time I try to inf- speak, I try to infuse it with this type of kind of mindset. And it's one of the reasons why I want to teach is to present a different viewpoint. And so like for me personally, it's a little bit more about trying to use, you know, um, opportunities to speak or write and infuse it with some of this, but like on a big, big scale, I think it has to come from donors personally and, and funders. So, you know, mega donors and foundations and ultimately dollars speak in this industry. Uh, and so if, if donors can get their minds, you know, wrapped around and, and some lead donors in particular talk about, Hey, how we are funding or how we think about impact and how we think about efficiency is wrong and it's crippling organizations. Let's change how we hold organizations accountable. Then organizations will follow. But even that's, you know, super hard to. Yeah. So something that we are doing here at Raise More, um, just making sure every piece 
of the team and departments all know kind of what the goals are um, is making sure that business design and also engineering are all on the same page and have signed off on our goals each week. So this is something that is interesting that I just thought of through what you were just talking about, bringing the donors in. You know, what's interesting is if they would bring in their donors and their champions in even a board meeting or just getting an understanding what's the challenge for them um, and get them to be the approval process, right? Get them to come in and help make some decisions, I think it's key. Yeah, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. It's one of the things that um, organizations don't do a very good job at at all is actually asking for their donors' opinions or surveys or you know focus groups or all those kind of things of understanding donors. But it's a two-way street because it also provides the opportunity in a conversation to share like, well, this is why you know we do some of the things we do or some of the struggles that we have. Um, there are a couple organizations. I think it's Donors Forum. There's one out in Chicago uh, that's really kind of leading the charge in a more significant way um, of engaging donors and trying to educate donors and be a part of the conversation with nonprofits. And um, they're doing some pretty cool stuff to try to change the mindset of of donors, which is neat. But again, I think the the most culpable most culpable the biggest uh problem in this in this arena is charities themselves like we're the ones who are going to donors and saying you should fund us because 99 percent goes to programs and we're the ones who are you know having these seals on our sites about how little we spend on stuff and like we're creating the problem like we need to start changing it and saying i don't give a crap about this seal of financial we're about impact and changing lives and this is what it takes so i think charities are actually most to blame but it's again they don't it's risky for them to change and go away from the system and so we're all like caught up in this big web and it's a mess yeah Yeah. i love your blog (laughs) um for those of who are listening go to shiftcharity.com your blog's great i i love how you have just a real no BS sort of writing style. So sort of on this topic, there's one that you wrote about um, titled Seven Ways to Be a Hero, Donor, Fundraiser, and you cited Jeff Brooks's book, Nine Ways to Be an Anti-Donor Fundraiser, and and link out to that. And I, I love what that says, because it's all about, it's like just, I think everyone's so focused on themselves internally that it's hard to step away and say okay how are people actually you know seeing us and interacting with us and and it's hard everyone you just like you get wrapped up in well meetings and well we do it this way and that way and it's just really hard to step away yeah i step back i think that like um inward looking communication style is a function of uh one you get you generally get people who work for causes that are so passionate about the cause and um they kind of forget that not all donors know what they know or are as passionate necessarily about them so for me one of my first jobs i worked for a microfinance organization and i just like freaking love microfinance and the the organization that i was working for like we were building financial institutions in developing countries to provide financial services that were sustainable on the ground and we were using philanthropic capital and, you know, rich countries to build it. And I'm like, I love the model and I love what we did. And, and so as a communications person, I was a marketing director for a year inherently, and I didn't know this, but 
our communication started airing just about like how cool we were and like, you know, how great our model was. But very few people really care about how cool we are, how our model was. What they cared about was like Florence and Rwanda, who was now getting a loan and like real people and real stories. And so now that I'm kind of, you know, out of it a bit, you're like, man, I was such an idiot. Like, what was I doing? We had all these you know, <laughs> great stories. But it's partly like you just get wrapped up in your own kind of passion and it's hard to step outside. And that's where like that donor voice or someone outside. So, you know, one of the tips is write your letter or email and send it to someone who really doesn't know you that well and get them to review it because just sending it in your office. Like you all know the same stuff. Everyone's going to give you the same feedback. So, you know, stepping outside. And the other one is just a function of time. Like if, if you're behind the gun and you're always rushing, the quickest thing is to just, you know, write how, what you know. And generally what you know is not what you need to communicate to donors. So I think those are the two biggest things that lead to this really like introspective, we're the best and how cool are we? And uh, that that's really bad for donors and engagement. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about uh – you know, moving forward with the donor conversation, something that we saw you speak about recently at the conference in, in Austin at BBCon was about um, monthly donors and building that relationship. Talk to us a little bit about, and you know, you can, I saw something in your slides about comparing like dogs and cats. Talk, talk to us about what you mean with that. <laughs> yeah. Well, monthly giving is like my big, uh, my big kick and I'm happy to talk more about why I'm on this big monthly giving kick. But the the difference between dogs and cats, that really came out of we my wife and I got a new dog uh about a, a month ago, month and a half ago. So we have this Bernese mountain dog. She's a puppy and she's just like consumed our entire life. Uh so in thinking of like these metaphors, it was easy to think about dogs. And we we have a cat. We've had a cat for six years named Thor. Um and so it's just kind of seeing the difference between our cat, who's a classic cat, like he doesn't give a crap about us. Uh, <laughs> and then this dog who's like whines when we walk down the stairs because she's so excited to see us <laughs> and was singing. I think that's the difference. I think monthly giving programs have traditionally been more like cats where it's kind of been like, great, we have their credit card number. Let's, you know, ring it from now until eternity, but like not really tell them about it. Um, you know, we've got them locked in. <laughs> They'll never know. Great. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, someone literally said, we can't communicate to our monthly donors because a lot of them don't even know they're giving. <laughs> I was like, that is terrible. Like, I, I you're a charity. That's okay, like revenue wise, but like relationally, that is egregious. Whereas I think, you know, modern monthly giving programs need to be more like dogs that are about, like, they're eager, they're full of love, they're regular communicating impact to people. And if you want to stop your donation, you have the right to stop your donation. We won't, you know, hold you hostage because we have your bank account information, things like that. So that that was kind of the the setting up of where I think things need to go. And part of the argument is, um, you know, the act of giving is a good one. Like we feel pleasure. It's it's a positive experience. And people that sign up for monthly giving programs, it's automated, and so they actually don't get the joy of giving, even though financially they're giving every month right if you get one update a year or every now and then for a donation you're making every 12 months that's not in balance you're taking the gift of giving away from the giver is what we say so these programs need to find ways to give that gift back to the donor so either you give them a report every month um, or you give them a story every month you treat them extra special or there's some of these things like giving circles that are evolving where people actually kind of give into a pool and then make a choice 
every month or every quarter of where to send the money or which project to fund or a vote. And that's the substitute for the act of giving. And these things form habits of giving as opposed to just focusing on how do we have, you know, a really efficient transaction. So that's kind of the difference that um, I think the, the programs need to be more like dogs and less like cats. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I agree. Yeah. And also, you know, goes back to being able to show the impact of what their dollar has done would potentially trigger them to up their ante, right? Um, instead of, you know, being fearful that they would actually take it down, right? What's, yeah. what's the challenge? I mean, you know, go try it out. See if you would actually increase your monthly giving uh, by telling great stories of how their funds have actually, you know, helped someone. Well, yeah, that's the other thing, right? Half the value of monthly giving is is the lifetime value that they, they, they can contribute and it can lead into things like, you know, planned giving for like when older donors. But then I think for like younger donors, it leads into things like people who use their voice or social influence, or maybe they do a peer fundraising page and raise 50 bucks for you, or it's an extra year end gift. Like if they're engaged and connected, those other things can happen. But if you're just like, you know, retreating because we have their credit card information, you're not going to get any of that other benefit of having this regular connection with a donor. And it's just, it's undervaluing, uh, you know, the, the value of a monthly giving program. So tell us about one of the most successful monthly giving programs, either you've worked on or seen like just completely turn things around and start, you know, getting that, uh, relationship with man's best friend. <laughs> uh, well, hopefully the the project that we're working on right now with with a client will be one. So you know, in a year from now, hopefully we can sit down. And I'll tell you about this you know great success. But um, I think there's there's really four organizations that um, I'm kind of modeling what I've learned from a distance off, and I'm applying this to different organizations. And one of them's Charity Water. Uh, just copy everything they do. Um, they, they launched <laughs> yeah. uh, they launched Pipeline. So it's their branded monthly giving program. And um, a few years back, I had the chance to go to an event and spend a little time in their office. And uh, one of the things they said was, we wish we would have thought about a recurring giving program much, much, much sooner because they didn't have a way to kind of convert their fundraisers and one-time donors into something. And they were really struggling with, you know, they, they have such a great grassroots following. They have thousands and thousands of donors. Their retention rate is is not great because it's hard to keep track. So they were, they said we should have built this. So that was a clue like, ah, maybe more organizers should build this. Um, so then a couple models. One is Liberty in North Korea. Uh, it's a really cool organization that in the social kind of modern nonprofit world does a ton of really, really good things. Um, and they have a program. I think it's just called Liberty. Uh, Pencils of Promise has a program called Passport. Um, just for monthly donors. And what's cool there is they have some real tangible offers. You get a surprise gift and they really try to make people feel special. And then the one that, that uh, I really like a lot is called the, um, the Universal Fund from Watsi. So uh, they provide surgeries to people in need in the developing world. And they just give you a short story and a picture of one person every month that is getting a surgery like almost in real time that month because of you know the monthly givers or, or donors to Universal Fund. So uh, we're kind of taking pieces of this, like regular communication focused on story, uh, tangible offer, 
and making people feel special with an element of surprise, you know, great storytelling and tangible donation amounts and kind of trying to build these components into into programs for organizations that uh, we think fit that kind of model. Well, we all love a pretty picture and a lovely story. So yeah, who doesn't? I know. Yeah, I think when it comes to reporting, you know, um, again, donors often say, oh, we want, you know, the numbers and things like that. And and they do, but more so they really just want a good story. And so, like, we'll we'll wait to send these reports because we don't have the metrics and the numbers and the stats. And it's like, you actually don't need all of that every single time. But just a simple story of one person uh, is much more powerful than all the numbers you can come up with. Yeah, I have. I think about it this way. It's like if I'm opening up an email that has like an infographic with a bunch of data in it, I could read through it and say, hmm, that's interesting. Okay, yeah, those are the numbers. When I open up an email and I see a picture of something that's very real and it's got a real person on it and a name on it, like then there's something that I actually connect with and I'm like, wow, you know. I wasn't, you know, I just go on and on in my daily life and don't think about these things. And it's, um, so I, I think that that just offers so much more than seeing numbers. But then again, I'm not a numbers geek. Under investing in technology is incredibly dangerous in today's environment. This was stated by uh, St. Jude at BBCon. So since you are a charity nerd and also a tech nerd, you know, where do you see, you know, if you had this magic wand um, and you could build anything for this market today, what would it be and what is this market missing? Uh, hey, I am a charity nerd. I don't think I'm a tech nerd. Uh, <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't reached that, that level yet. Um, and I, like when when you sent this question through, I actually struggled with it a lot because at first I was like, "Oh, magic wand! This is easy." Um, <laughs> but I think here's here's the first answer, which is really a non-answer. I don't think technology is actually the the problem. <laughs> so an underinvestment is a problem, um, and how we use technology. But I think the bigger thing goes back to that conversation more around mindset and how we view donors and how we view our roles and. Uh, how we just evaluate overall success because increasingly like there's a ton there's really a ton of really good products and technology out there uh, and like guys like you are coming up with awesome ideas and there's a lot of it out there um, but it's hard to convince organizations to switch to to use new technology that's maybe unproven uh, because again it's risky and what if it doesn't work so we'll just stay with what we're always doing um, so I think the, the the bigger thing is like if I had this magic wand, uh, I would change mindsets <laughs> because I think that the technology technology makes things easier and better and faster, but it doesn't replace things like you know strategy and mindset. And until that changes, technology can only do so much. That was the biggest frustration working on the tech side was like it's not about the tool. It's how you use the tool. And we literally can't go in and use it for you. Like you have to use it. So that would be, that would be the one thing. So, uh, that doesn't really answer your question. So if I could do like a tech thing, I don't even know how this would work. Um, but I think something that would be able to easily better understand why people gave. So whether it's like a, I don't even know what it'd be like a, a gauge or just like universally, 
you know, donation platforms would just have a standard set of questions or a slider scale or I don't know, something that people could indicate this is why I'm giving today. Just, you know, as a as an agency or when we get into marketing, it's like, great, we know how old someone is and we know where they live and we know how much they gave to you last time. And so we can do some things and try to talk to them specifically. But that's just demographic information. And it's just, you know, we're just making guesses based on demographic. Whereas the more we can get into like the psychographic stuff about like what they care about, why they give, well, now we can start telling really good stories. We can give them impact reports that mean something to them. As opposed to just like, well, you gave fifty bucks six months ago, so we'll ask you for sixty-five now. Like that's <laughs> yeah, that's not you know useful data for the donor. It's kind of you know useful for charity. So something around understanding more at scale the motivations and finding a way for that to be kind of you know tagged into a system or something like that. I don't know yeah. how it would work. Uh, yeah, I love that. So there is like example of, okay, you're going to sign up for this event or you're giving a donation. And sometimes, a lot of times, you got to fill out a million other of those demographic questions. It's like, I just want to sign up for the event or I just want to give the 25 bucks, you know? So yeah, I think what you are hitting upon is fantastic. And organizations should think about like, okay, I'm going to ask for the basics that I have to have, name, email, whatnot. And then like, I'm going to cut out all these other BS questions about how old you are. And I'm going to ask why you're doing this. One or two questions. Because I feel like as a donor, I would not mind being asked those questions. I do mind being asked the other questions because I'm like, why Why do you want all of this? What are you doing with it? Great. Now I'm just going to get a bunch of mail and I'm going to have, you know, more stuff yeah. to put in the recycle bin. Um, so, yeah, I, I love what you're saying. It, and I think that's definitely a mindset change where we have to talk about it more and talk about, you know, and, and get the donors out in front, like we talked about earlier in the conversation, is like pulling them in and, you know, doing focus groups or whatever to be like, would you rather, are you likely to abandon giving a donation if you have to answer these questions versus these questions? Because I feel like there's probably a lot of abandonment that goes on with, um, you know, when too many of those personal questions are being asked about demographics. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things, like, just do at least an annual survey and keep it dead simple. Like, why do you give? Um, How are we doing? Like, even if it's as simple as that, you know, like, just ask donors uh, why they give. Now, be careful, because especially in philanthropy, like, survey data, people always say one thing and do another. And when it comes to charitable giving, it's it's really tricky because everyone wants to, you know, present the best version of themselves in responses. <laughs> so that's why you should then test it. So if everyone's like, oh, yeah, you know, I give because I want to make a difference in the world. It's like, all right, that's mm-hmm. great. And then the other thing around like, um, like building forms kind of is um, – have you ever taken or downloaded one of those apps where you do like brain tests or like brain quizzes yes. to yes. improve your memory or whatever? I forget the exact one. Uh, oh, I have it on my phone. I have- you have it? There's yeah. a few of them now. And um, one of them, I saw this cool report. Their sign-up process is robust. Like you have to answer a ton of questions and take like these little quizzes. And this um, this article that I was reading was talking about this investment and actually um, having more – barriers or forms so to speak to fill out isn't necessarily a bad thing if it leads to a better experience of using the product so 
you know, if if I'm going to sit there and fill out a bunch of information, then as long as the informa- as long as the product or what I'm getting now is, is really valuable or uses that, I actually don't mind, and I'm actually willing to do it. It's when we ask for all this information and it doesn't do anything for us that we get pissed off, right? So if you actually ask the donor, like, when would you like to get solicited and what would you like to know? And then we actually did that and said, hey, here's what you said. Here's the appeal or whatever it is. If it's adding value, I think people actually would give more information like you said. It's just mm-hmm. asking for useless information that just sits there. That's the problem. So let's go into a monthly subscription model. So this is something that we have put into place here at Raise More. And it's new uh, to this nonprofit space. Um, you know, that's something that I wanted to talk to you about. I know um, your stat that you presented at BBCon was 61.5% preferred to give $10 a month across 12 months versus 120. Why is this? And the reason why I bring this up is we do this today. You know, we have cell phone bills, we do Dropbox or even the Dollar Shave Club, right? So, how should nonprofits, you know, get ready for this model? How should they bring this into their business model? Yeah. Well, one, they should have a monthly giving program. So, again, <laughs> I, I think it just makes makes a lot of sense. And what was interesting about that, that stat uh, or that study and um, a lot of the research that I kind of reference comes from this book, Science of Giving. It's uh, 14 different kind of hardcore charity nerds doing all kinds of research. We made a required reading for our class this year, actually. But it was one of their studies. And um, what's interesting is it should be more convenient to just give the 120 away right at once or have it go to the charity at first. So then the charity has it quicker. Or if you're, you know, like business nerd, then you should hold on to it because of the time value of money and you should give it away at the very end, which was the other option. But the vast majority of people chose to give it, you know, frequently, which is kind of like the least efficient option in a lot of ways. And I think it's it's twofold. One, it's just simple. It's just like, oh, it's less that happens more frequent. And whatever it is, it's just our brains like it. Our brains really like simplicity, right? We crave understanding. So if something can give us a shortcut to understanding, then we'll take it. So I think that's one of them. And then the other one is this chapter goes on to talk about this theory of um, separation of benefit kind of. And, and what the $10 a month does is it kind of um, reduces the pain that you you have. So it's not 120 at once, but 10. But then on the giving side, it spreads out the benefit that you get. So every month in theory, oh, I'm giving $10. I get a little benefit every month. So on the charity side, I think those are just two more arguments for why you need a monthly giving program. And then on like the, the business side, like um, especially me trying to start up my own company, like monthly billing is brilliant. Like one time, you know, upfront costs or things that are coming at the end, like I'm not a great finance person. So knowing that, oh, it's this much per month, it just makes sense to me. Um, I think that that model, I think increasingly is just making sense. And maybe as decision makers like our generation that have just kind of grown up with more of these things like Dropbox and Netflix and Razors of the Month and stuff, mm-hmm. um, maybe that'll be more prevalent. And I'm already seeing a lot of other, you know, tech companies that are moving to just like simpler pricing models that are this much a month if you have this many records or you know this much much a month uh and i think it'll help uh, make financial decisions um so i don't know if that's really like what you were asking but um i just kind of took it as a way to talk about monthly giving again yeah <laughs> no no and that's where i wanted you to go because, uh i know we baited about- you again into yeah, like, oh, into nice. that topic that's how it goes here 
So one last thing, I think, um, you know, what is the one thing you wish someone would have told you before you put two feet in into fundraising? Ooh, that is a, a good question and slightly different than uh, what you sent through. So now I'm going to change my answer. Ha <laughs> ha. Uh, I think... <laughs> I don't this is going to sound really kind of like cheesy maybe but like take care of yourself. <laughs> um like fundraising and, and charity is tough because no one really is looking out for you necessarily. You know, there's not like wellness programs. I mean, it's getting better, but for the most part it's like we're going to take advantage of the fact that you have a personal passion for what you're doing and we're going to take you to the woodshed. You know, and that, that's not like an overt thing that they say obviously. But that's been the experience uh, uh, that I've had working for a couple places that I've really like passionately believed in and just getting so quickly burnt out and just feeling like, you know, there's everyone's busy and strapped. So no one's like looking out for you and how to develop your career. And like it's on you to do it. Like the rewards are fantastic to show up to work and feel like what you're doing is, you know, making a really direct impact into the the lives of people and passion. But you got to take care of yourself. So whether it's like, you know, wellness type stuff and working out, which I still don't do very much, uh, like doing those kind of things or just particularly with your career. So like getting a like a coach uh, or a mentor that's regular is one thing I wish I would have done. Um, and increasingly, there's kind of these um, groups that are more focused on career development. And I just kind of stumbled my way through it as opposed to being real intentional about you know, this career path. So that's a long bumbling uh, answer to just like look out for yourself because it's, it's not always, um, it's not always the best place to have a thriving life. You know, you're much better if you're at a hundred percent versus 50%. And so if you need to take that week, if you need to take those two days, um, you know, do it so you can become a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And also, yeah, definitely like I need to get back into the gym since starting to work here. <laughs> Um, and no I'm kidding she gives me lots of good flexibility I kid I kid but um, I think also what you said about finding a mentor is important and I think that's also something for people at startups listening is um, you know and if you're at a smaller nonprofit too or at a startup I think there's a lot of opportunity for career growth but mm-hmm. you have to be ready to take the bull by the horns and sort of make it for yourself, you know. So, because yeah. like you said, may, things are moving so quickly. You're on the ground doing a lot of stuff, ability to make a lot of uh, direct impact. But at the same time, you can't sit around, you know, sitting on your thumbs waiting for someone to just be like, oh, Johnny, he's so good. You've got to, you know, just just own it. Yeah. Yeah, uh, the mentor thing's huge. I'll change my answer to that. Get a mentor. Um, <laughs> but but even my own experience, like the first organization I was at was awesome. Um, and, and the CEO was great. And like we were just really lean and scrappy. But the opportunity was like I was like running the show as like a 20-whatever-year-old and like awesome experience. But then you cap out really quick. You kind of plateau. And then there's like, well, I can't, you know, there's there's no more responsibility here. There's not a lot of uh, like money or other opportunities and I think that that cycle happens a lot. So people jump jobs and, you know, that first growth or you're new and then you hit this plateau and then there's not a lot of place to go. So, um, you know, mentors can kind of help you through that or just come up with your own professional development type plan. I'm just saying, all right, this is what I'm going to do and, you know, be proactive. Like you said, take the bull by the horns. I think most organizations would be like, awesome, great. <laughs> like, yeah. how can we help you with that? Do but it. I'm not going to sit down and like pull it out of you. Yeah. 
Yeah. All right, show us your pin. I got to see this. Oh, pin. the pen? Yeah. So this this is a trick. Uh, I don't know if you can see that. There you go. Yep, yeah, I can see it. it's one of those. Oh, up. that's like from the eighties. Yes, that's exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know what the the CEO of of the company I worked for last last uh, John Bromley in this company called Chimp. He wore this like every single day, and he'd wear it in his in his shirt, and you know he'd click it a different color to do edits and. I was like, that is awesome. And I remember these pens and I was like in grade four. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so I bought a stack of them and I'm actually in the process of ordering like custom shift ones as, as little gifts for people. Oh, that's great. Uh, so I stole that from, from John. So there you go. Uh, nod to John for that. It's one of those pens that has the three different colors. It's like it's green and it's blue and it's red. I'm just giving people a visual. Um, oh, right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Because <laughs> we can see it. And yeah, I remember them too when I was a child. Thanks so much for your time. All right, let's drop in the outtakes. <laughs> Smile with your pin. <laughs> I specifically asked Devin if this was going to be uh, visual. Check out the wedding. You were at the wedding? You were at the wedding. I was there, yeah. Yeah, hey, we, we got a wedding yeah, video. Yeah, we did a wedding video. Oh, you did? <laughs> yeah, I think you'll enjoy it. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll check that out. <laughs> well, hey. <laughs> It's it's a uh, it's a good video. Every wedding has a video, so we had to have one. Yeah, yeah, that was a sp- that was a fun party. <laughs> you know, that's one reason why we decided to do this podcast is just to be raw. Like yeah. no one, no mm-hmm. one really is just raw in this industry. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. It is weird. People are really stuffy, and so we wanted to just let the quirkiness out and not be stuffy. Yeah. No, that's awesome. I mean, although uh, I got bleeped on the first episode. <laughs> well, we want, yeah, we wanted um, it to be. Um, <laughs> we didn't want to have a mature rating on the first one. <laughs> I was like, that's "Come fun. on, can we just keep it?" No. Hey guys, thanks for listening today to Raise More Now. I hope you enjoyed the show. Walk away with some fundraising goodness. If you want to tune in again, go to RaiseMore.com and subscribe. And from there, you can also find us on Facebook. And we have some cool videos on RaiseMore.com. This is new to us. Again, we love feedback, so give it to us. See ya. Drinking on a badminton trip? That is nerdy. (laughs) (laughs) 